Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of 123 All Ears on Me. I'm your host, Kaylina Mills. I originally had planned a different podcast episode today, a silly and celebratory one. However, after the devastating events in Lewiston last week, that episode no longer felt relevant to me, to us at Maine AEYC, or to the ECE field in Maine as a whole. As a result, today's episode is an open dialogue amongst Maine AEYC staff, reflecting on how we talk to children about tragedy and how we're feeling right now. This conversation is imperfect and incomplete, It's not meant to be a final or definitive conversation, but rather an authentic conversation where ECE professionals openly share our feelings, our strategies, and our knowledge about talking to children about violence and tragedy. We are processing this event in real time with all of you, and this conversation is just a snapshot of our current reflections. If this is not a conversation that you feel like you can listen to right now, we completely understand. Take care of yourself. Come back to this episode in the future if you're ready, or simply skip it and join us for future episodes. It's a heavy conversation, and we encourage you to do what's best for you and your mental health. You can also look in the show notes for alternative resources if you would find that helpful. Our hearts continue to go out to the Lewiston community and all of those affected. We are grieving right alongside you and are here to support you in any way that we can. When we come back, I will have a few updates about federal and local legislation, and then we'll get into our conversation. Did you know that we secured $60 million in funds this past spring for childcare in Maine? This historic investment is improving the system for providers, educators, and families alike, attempting to make childcare more affordable and accessible, and increasing wages for early childhood educators. But we didn't accomplish this tremendous goal easily. It took a huge coalition of people to advocate for effective policy and change. And if you're ready to join efforts like this and be an advocate for early childhood education on a state and federal level, then you should apply for Maine AYC's LEAP program. LEAP stands for Leadership in Early Childhood Advocacy and Policy. This is a year-long cohort program for educators, parents, and community members across the state of Maine to learn best practices and strategies in speaking about the most pressing, critical early childhood issues. The program includes opportunities to participate in activities and training, speak with administrators and elected officials, and organize with other educators, parents, and community members. If you're interested in becoming a better advocate and joining a coalition of ECE changemakers, you can find more information and the 2024 cohort application at maineayc.org slash leap. That's M-A-I-N-E-A-E-Y-C dot org slash L-E-A-P. The 2024 cohort application deadline is approaching November 17th. So apply today at mainyyc.org/leap. Before we begin our conversation today, I have a few updates for the field about some federal policy as well as some local events. The first announcement that I have is that on Monday, October 30th, the Biden administration announced its domestic supplemental budget request to Congress. 
Their request included $16 billion in additional funding to stabilize the child care sector following the expiration of the child care stabilization funding at the end of September. NACI applauds the administration's prioritization of child care in its request, as well as the early educators and advocates who have spent countless hours sharing their stories and advocating on behalf of the families, communities, and young children they serve. Now it is time for Congress to take action by swiftly passing a budget deal with robust funding for child care and early learning programs, including the President's supplemental request for stabilization. Take action today to urge your members of Congress to hashtag SaveChildCare. You can find links to get more information about how you can advocate, including a scripted message that you can send to your congressional representatives. And you can get that on the federal advocacy page of our website, maineaeyc.org. That's M-A-I-N-E-A-E-Y-C.org. The second update I have for you all today is about hashtag Love Lewiston Day. The Tree Street Youth Organization in Lewiston has declared Friday, November 3rd to be Love Lewiston Day. No matter where you are in the state, or the world for that matter, you can do something on November 3rd to spread love in your community in honor of Lewiston, Maine. To learn more about participating and or to get ideas for projects and activities to do, you can go to Maine AEYC's social media sites, the events page of our website, or to the Tree Street Youth's social media and website. Their website is treestreetyouth.org. Maine AEYC will be participating in the day, and we hope you'll join us. Spread the love, make your community stronger, and honor those affected by last week's events in Lewiston. The third and final update I have before we get into our conversation today is that Friday, November 3rd is also the deadline to apply for the 2024 LEAP cohort. If you want to help make change in Maine and across the nation to benefit children, families, and the ECE workforce, you should consider applying. It's a great program to learn about the best ways to use your voice, navigate the government systems, and refine your advocacy skills. You get to work with seasoned advocates, lobbyists, changemakers, and legislators to grow your advocacy toolbox and become a better advocate today. I hope you'll consider applying, and remember, Friday is the deadline. Are you thinking about going back to school to get your early childhood education degree? Maine AEYC and the Office of Child and Family Services wants to make it happen for you. We are proud to facilitate the Teach Scholarship Program so that early childhood educators throughout the state can go back to school to get their associate or bachelor's degree with most expenses covered. The Teach Program is unique because it's a partnership between you, Maine AEYC, and your employer. Together, we all work to ensure that you can successfully meet your career and educational goals. If you get a TEACH scholarship, Maine AEYC pays for 85% of your tuition costs, your employer pays for 7.5%, and you are only responsible for the remaining 7.5% of your tuition cost. For those seeking their associate degree, that's an average of only $260 per year that you must pay out of pocket. Exactly, Tony. You can get your degree through the TEACH scholarship program for very little money and without having to take out loans. It's such a phenomenal program to support early childhood educators throughout Maine. In addition to funding your tuition, TEACH recipients are paid for two hours a week of release time so that they can study without losing pay from work or time from their families. The scholarship provides a stipend each term and the scholarship pays for 85% of your book costs. 
The scholarship provides so much to its recipients. And in addition to all of those benefits, Teach Scholarship recipients get one-on-one counseling and support from a Maine AEYC staff member to ensure that they can successfully complete their program. It's so simple to apply for a Teach Scholarship. Go to maineayyc.org slash application and download the application to your computer. After that, it should only take about 30 minutes to fill out the form and apply. Again, that's maineayyc.org slash application. M-A-I-N-E-A-E-Y-C dot org slash application. Apply for a Teach Scholarship today and get back into the classroom to get your degree. All right, so I am joined today by Tony Major, who is a teach counselor at Maine AUIC, Jesse Ellis, the development director, and Heather Martin, the co-executive director. Hi, guys. Hello, good morning. Morning. Good morning. <laughs> yes, it's very early in the morning for a Zoom call. Um, but thank you guys for all joining and and taking some time to chat about about how we talk to kids about violence and tragedy. Um, you know, we're all still recovering and processing what happened in Lewiston last week. So um, I think this will be really helpful for a lot of educators to to hear how we're processing and and any tips we have because we all have a lot of different uh, experiences in early childhood. So I guess the first question I'll ask is how are you guys processing as teachers, as humans? How, how are you doing? Well, I think for me, you know, we also had this, uh, other obstacle of having a conference coming up in the midst of all this. And there was that moment of being aware of what's going on, hurting, trying to rackle it in my brain. And then knowing that we were also responsible to a lot of other people um, for their their daily plans, their travel, uh, and trying to do a quick turnaround on focusing how to best handle and make decisions around that. So I think the processing on a whole took a little pause because work had to be done. And I know for many, you know, first responders and people out there who had to go on with a routine and and do work and attend to other things, some of the grief got put on pause. So I think there is probably a delay reaction for a lot of people going on. Um, and I think that's what I'm feeling is that I didn't get to sit with the emotions for a little while. And then when I did, you know, all the the things would come out in little ways, the sadness, the anger of what happened, the concern and care for those specifically directly affected and for those out there, you know, putting their lives on the line to try to catch um, someone pers- uh, capable of such horrible things. So, um, you know, I definitely carrying it into this week in different ways um, while still trying to attend to life and what we all need to continue to do. But I think on the other end, trying to balance that, you know, we all need to find those things that offset the hurt and grief and anger as well. So trying to find little ways to fill my bucket each day. 
I think for me, one of the pieces that really has resonated is the sense of community. Lewiston is a large town in Maine. It's a small city. But you are seeing, at least I'm seeing, outreach and love come from the farthest reaches of our state and other states around us. And that has been such a point of hope for me in all of this. And it's one of the things, you know, we shared a quote about from Fred Rogers about looking for the helpers. And that's usually what I talk to kids about is when something is going wrong, look for people who want to help. And they're out there all the time. So that's really what I'm holding on to. Because as Heather said, we were, we, you know, we had to compartmentalize all of our own personal pieces. You know, I lost a friend in that mass shooting and I didn't know. I was worried, but I didn't know. And so having to put all of that down until business got handled and working through that sort of piece by piece after the fact has been challenged, but it's, it's a slow process and you've got to give yourself time. So it's a lot of grace that comes with breathing. Yeah. I think that's a lot of like what Jesse said is, and where Maine is kind of special to all of us is that sense of community, which is, I also think what makes this harder because we've always had this sense of, well, Maine is special that these sort of things don't happen here because we're such a community. So then having it happen kind of shatters that. But then like Jesse says, it's hopeful to see it wasn't shattered, you know, it was pushed and it was hurt, but everyone is still coming together and everyone still supports each other. And it gives us hope for the future in that way. I think that's my big takeaway at this point. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about community as well. And and we say we're such a big community in Maine. And I feel like there, there is a sense of community. And each town has a really clear sense of community. But also, it's so easy to be left out of that community because uh, we're a primarily rural state. Even in the city, though, you can just kind of like do your own thing and not invest in the local community. Um, and so I've been thinking a lot about community care, especially with this incident. Like we knew this person had mental health issues, um, had access to firearms, had all of this experience and training as an outdoorsman. And he just kind of got lost in the, in the fringes of, of our society. And, I'm, so I'm thinking a lot about community care and how we build community systems of care to to better help those people and to better support everyone in our community who's who's looking for a place where they belong um, and looking for connection. And I think that's where education comes in. Like we're all educators. So I'm like, oh, we can do all this stuff at schools, right? We can build community with our students. We can bring in the families. We can extend outreach to our local community. I think there's schools are such a central community space in every community that there's a lot of potential 
for educators and students to really help build systems of community care. So that's what I've been thinking about. So how do you guys uh, see, or what do you guys see as the role for educators or for schools um, in supporting students, especially, but in supporting just the community in this time? I think first and foremost, the biggest thing we have to make sure we do is we have to talk about it. Our instinct, especially as early educators is like, oh, let's just, we'll ignore the bad thing. We, we won't bring it up. We won't talk about it. And then everyone will feel better. We won't have to deal with our big emotions. But kids know things are happening. They They might not know exactly what's happening, but trying to ignore a big issue, especially something as big as this, doesn't help anyone. So I think that's the first piece is making sure we're acknowledging our feelings like we're doing, making sure we're acknowledging the events that happened, and then taking those next steps in helping kids process this as well. You know, when all of this happened, and it brought me back to a moment in my teaching career, um, when another significant tragic event happened, and that was the Boston Marathon bombings. Um, at that time, uh, the Boston Marathon was actually a big event in my classroom. We taught about it. Um, it was part of a kind of physical education, nutrition um, lesson I would do each year. We would celebrate it. We'd talk about the helpers that run, the people that raise money for, uh, you know, for uh, beneficiaries, for um, good causes. And we'd talk about, um, you know, the pieces of the folks around the edges who happen, look for the folks in the vest that are helping people along the way. Um, so we really talked about the spirit of the Boston Marathon and what it means to the city and our country. And we would train and the kids would run at school and we'd do our own marathon at school. And I would encourage families to watch the Boston Marathon. And so on that day, I had encouraged my classroom and kids to watch the marathon with their families. We'd pick some runners to track and follow on online. And so I knew a bulk of my children were watching that day and I knew they'd all receive the information differently. Parents would receive and, and talk about the information differently. So I think, you know, in my responses as, a, as an educator and to what I could think of now, if I was still in the classroom at this time, my first thing would be communication with families and working with families as a team to say, how do we want to handle this together? Um, you know, certainly there were going to be children in my class who knew nothing about it. Maybe they weren't watching that day and the families did shield them from the media um, and information. However, I knew I had my kids who were very much on up on current events constantly in my classroom. And I knew I was going to have that one child come in and the first thing out of their mouth was going to be, did you see what happened? And they were going to talk about it. And I never wanted my classroom to be a space where kids couldn't talk and process, but it did mean often that other children uh, we're going to find out information that maybe they weren't aware of. So I had to talk to families about that and and let them know that, you know, to what, you know, to certain extents, um, children were going to talk about this. And I want to make sure I have good responses that the parents would feel comfortable with. Um, and, and with my background in education and expertise that I could also share the resources with the families with levels that I think would support the kids. So um, for me, I think, you know, We've got a little theme of community going on here. You have to be a community with your families and those kids and have to be a team with them. And then think of what are those responses you can all say together so that there's 
acknowledgement that something scary happened, but that there is also that message of hope and confidence that you have adults in your life who care about you and are going to keep this world as safe as they can for you. So, um, you know, the marathon had happened, uh, and at the end, um, of the week, um, we ran our own marathon. We, we kept the event. The families felt that was very appropriate. They came and cheered their kids on, showed them that they could keep going, you know, with things that make them happy and they've worked hard for, and that it wasn't going to be scary and it could be safe for them. So I think working with your colleagues, working with your parents and families, being transparent that you are feeling this and grieving this too, and you are going to work you know, super hard to be there for their kids while you're you're dealing with your own grief. Um, because I think transparency and feelings is so important because kids are going to pick up on what, what we sense and feel. Um, but we can still sense and feel, but also um be there for the children and create positive spaces. So my experience of schools was a little bit different from everybody else in our office. Um, I am a, I was a school-based clinician, so I was a child and family therapist. Um, but I spent a lot of my time in school pulling kids from classes and sort of processing big feelings on a day-to-day -day basis. That was my whole job. And so when things would come up, you know, a community member would die and the whole school was impacted. We talk about how we rally for each other. And the piece that I found was really sort of vital was consistent messaging. So everybody was using the same language. The school got together and talked about how do we talk about this in a way that is respectful of the people who are hurting and is mindful of what they're going through while still showing support and being, you know, a place for hope and light. And that I find is sort of, it's the piece that seems to be missing from a lot of these big moments of hurting is finding ways to have the same consistent language. And so schools are such a, a vital piece of that because they can provide that for families. So they can create and talk about how do we support and how do we go about this conversation with respect and dignity for the families that are going through it and creating a a consistent and thorough vocabulary for kids to talk about it because they often will just you know kids say stupid things sometimes and they don't know what they're saying because they don't understand that this might hurt somebody's feelings. And so giving kids a space to make the mistakes and to talk about it in a helpful way and giving them the vocabulary, I think is a really key piece of how schools help in these moments as being a point of community. Yes, I love that point out of kids make mistakes because I think in our own grief as adults, we also make mistakes and that empathy and care right now um, and how people's reactions and feelings can sometimes respond to crisis are all different. And you might have a child in your class um, who might be silly about it, right? And that might be the way they best process um, to protect their own, um, do their own self-preservation and that we have to have grace around that, that there is way to gu maybe guide 
some appropriateness if it's affecting other people, but at the same time, not to put blame um, on how someone processes their own grief, because we all have to go through this the way we do. So I really appreciate that point about, you know, kids make mistakes as adults, we're going to make mistakes too in our feelings and, and, and how we outwardly show those feelings sometimes. I think especially because one of the pieces that I saw so often in particularly in family therapy when I was working with parents and kids who you know so if they lost somebody the pet died um if they had to move big transitions were always a huge talking point during family therapy sessions and we would talk often about how love languages come into it and so making sure that a everybody knew their own and b everybody knew everybody else's um was really important in terms of finding that commonality that common language of okay so for mom to feel better it would be helpful if i would help around the house but for dad to feel better he really needs me to tell him that i love him and that things are going to be okay because words of affirmation is his number one and so finding that common language I think creates a space that's safe and that gives everybody a sense of like we are part of this team and that I think is where yeah I think that's where that language piece really comes in and I think too we have to remember and you both, both touched on it some, we're helping kids process, we're helping families in our community process. We have to give ourselves the grace of remembering we're all still processing as well. You know, if how somebody is processing their grief is setting our grief or setting us to a point where we can't process how we need to, we need to allow ourselves the grace of, you know, I need you to step in and help this student so that I can step off and have my moment. I need to take the time for me as well. We need to allow ourselves that grace because we can't help our students and our families if we're not helping ourselves. And that's something I did a lot in the classroom uh, with my students and also with families in communication is just model uh, how to process feelings. Um, you know, I would say I'm feeling this way. I'm feel because X, Y, Z, right. And I would do that in all kinds of circumstances. And they find that it's really, really important in, in moments of grief, because it, it shows students that it's okay to have big feelings, um, which a lot of the time in our society, it's not treated as okay to have big feelings. And so, um, I think modeling that for students and families is really important and modeling vulnerability and authenticity. And I think it brings people closer together as well. So it helps build that community and that feeling of safety and belonging in that space. <clears throat> um, but I just want to say that I, I really personally appreciate you guys talking about communication with families and consistent messaging because um I'm a young person and I was in elementary school when 9-11 happened and um, my parents hid it from me. Like I did not see any of the media and they felt that was the best choice. My dad's an early childhood educator um, and 
just looking back on that, I don't feel like that was the correct choice because I heard all kinds of pieces. Like Heather's saying, there are kids who know things, right? And I heard all kinds of pieces out on the playground and in, in the social interactions that I didn't really know what was going on. And you're getting misinformation from other kids, right? Um, and so I think kind of acknowledging that we're not going to tell your kids everything. <laughs> like we we don't want to share every detail. We're not going to show footage of things in the classroom, but we need to acknowledge this. And having that conversation with parents is something that I think is important and being like, this is not something we can ignore. And actually it could very negatively impact your child to ignore it because they're going to get drips and drabs of misinformation from other students. And that's going to freak them out more than just having an open dialogue about it with a trusted adult, right? So that's something I was just reflecting on as you guys are talking is, is the importance of kind of holding firm on the need to talk about it. And I think that can extend to into our conversations with other adults too. Um, and I, I have a deep worry, particularly, you know, in our line of work and working with early childhood educators that, you know, we can often stuff things down because we have to be there for these little people, right? And we have to be smiling and, you know, making all the right choices all the time. And so for me, I have a deep worry for folks in our field who have been going through a tremendously hard time in our profession, you know, for several years now. And I think about the weight of every decision when you're grieving and processing. I think about the little nuances of each day, you know, of a director needing to get tuition that a family hasn't paid, like the heaviness of that decision right now to ask that family to pay when something so tragic has happened. You know, every decision now holds so much more weight in, in the wake of tragedy. Um, and you second guess yourself, you know, the decision of, you know, a child's having a behavioral issue in the class, you know, how you now set your boundaries and 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 work through that um, can feel a little different than what you would have done, you know, even just five days ago. Um, and, and it changes, it changes you forever, but I think it changes your scope on each decision you make. So I just have a deep worry of this practice that, you know, we all engage in around early childhood education the overwhelming amount of empathy that people who work in this profession hold and you know anyone who knows when you are an empath and you are absorbing all that energy all day around you um it gets tiring it gets exhausting and you don't always take care of yourself and i think that's the thing about early childhood professionals you everyone else comes first and you come last often um so you know, I think I just want the field to know we are, we're worrying about you and we would hope if there was resources and needs that we could support with, um, even if it's just a phone call and just say, I need someone who understands the weight of my work I do every day to talk to about this, um, you know, that we are here as an organization to support you. Um, you know, we definitely um, hold heavy for those programs, particularly in the Lewiston and greater Lewiston area that is, you know, are going to have 
um, relationships with the ones most infected who are going to be directly affected. There was a childcare program right on the road of one of the scenes where one of the incidences happened. And we know, you know, what does that mean to go back and, and just hold all these heavy stories and relationships in the moment. So, um, you know, I think everyone needs to know we are thinking about you. We are talking about you and we want to provide what we can for anyone. Um, so please to reach out to and just know that you have a network here um, that that supports you and understands your grief in the different ways that happen in early childhood education. I think what you said is really important for a lot of reasons, but something I'm thinking about too it, with that is is modeling negative emotions, right? And how to handle those properly, right? Like I really firmly believe in children as full people. They're not like little mini adults, right? That are in training, um, in my opinion. And so I think it's really important that kids learn how to care for not just themselves and their peers, but for the adults in their life, life too. So I, I think it's really good to model how to process those negative emotions with kids. Like you don't need to be Miss Chipper, kindergarten, preschool teacher all the time, you know, you can, you can show that life is hard and, and how to handle that, um, in a healthy way and a graceful way, um, and a hopeful way, right? Like maintaining that line of hope, but you don't always need to have the smiley face on and, and do the whole performance of, of being happy. I think that leads to a culture of toxic positivity that I really don't think is healthy for anybody. Um, and I just really want to encourage people to, to be able to share their emotions in an age appropriate way with their students. I think that's valuable for students to see that adults also feel things deeply and, and that they can contribute to their community by taking care of everyone in it, including the adults, just like the adults help take care of them. You know, it's all reciprocal. So I think that's really important as well. Like you don't have to fake it right now. You can go into your classroom and and be yourself and be authentic and, and vulnerable with, with your families and your students. There's a, there's a process that we go through in therapy with journaling around you know, sort of how you navigate emotions and there's journal prompts and things like that. And um, with littles, I used to do it as art therapy. So I would read off a journal prompt and they would draw a picture of whatever that made them think of. And, um, but one of them I absolutely adored and I just pulled it up. So it's processing through disappointment, but it's question, it rephrases it in a way that makes so much sense to kids and instead of processing it as disappointment it's what passion or sense of caring is at the source of this what space did you hold for whatever it is that let you down and can you get that back and so the same way with grief you know grief is rephrased as it's all the love that you couldn't give so if you lose somebody, you held you held space for that person. You wanted that person in your life and you wanted to love them in all the ways you can. 
And when you, that got cut short, grief is just compounding all the love you wanted to give that person for the rest of your life into a very short amount of time. And so one of the things that I find is really helpful is to have kids process, particularly through art in our early childhood phase of handwriting and, and developmentally appropriate practices with um, being able to draw a picture of the person and then all the pieces about them that you love and giving them that space to create and leading by example. So like having the teacher talk about somebody that they loved and give an example and be that model for those kids in a way that processes these big hard feelings in healthy and supportive ways rather than really just focusing on the negative but finding ways to make a positive from that I have to say I'm I'm thankful for our, our team because I know you know Thursday morning we were up early messaging thinking about you know one how we all first work and communicate together through that day again knowing we'd have to make decisions about the conference and knowing we'd have to take care of ourselves and each other. And I appreciate that we were able to, you know, be open and honest about first our safety that day. And, you know, second, um, that we were going to have to make hard decisions that we were going to have to ask each other to be present at certain moments on the drop of a dime to make hard decisions. And, um, and also, you know, help with this communication we had to do out. So I was, you know, very impressed with um, how our team worked through that during a difficult time. And I think it was a test for our own internal um, workings and relationships with each other and, and showed us a lot about our team as well, which was really um, positive and powerful in that moment. So I want to acknowledge that. And I know Morgan couldn't be with us today, but the leadership she also held through that, um, knowing that, um, you know, she was the one uh, doing a bulk of the communication at that point um, with venues and and folks trying to fly in. And um, so it was, you know, just a, a powerful, positive moment to be involved in, in the wake of a severe tragedy um, that was happening as well. And I'm hoping that anyone who experienced some positive, powerful moments, whether it's in your relationships or some kindness that was shown, you know, that you acknowledge that with those people too, because um, that's part of processing this grief is, is lifting other, each other up and, you know, realizing that, and one of my fears was, you know, that when this person got caught, that we'd move on, right? We'd move on too fast and we'd try to tuck it down and say it's over and it's not over. Um, it's certainly not over for those most affected and it's not over for us for a long time. Um, and something we'll always hold now in our history of Maine. Um, this will be part of us and our culture and our stories um, and will be impacted um, by this forever. And so I think, you know, I would hope that people, um, you know, share something positive with a colleague and, and let them know, you know, how they affect them in positive ways. Because I think that is, you know, a gift we can give each other if we can't donate, if we can't, um, you know, if we don't know anyone immediately affected that, you know, we can reach out to and do that, but that 
you know, there are small ways to spread that positivity and kindness. And I know today, Lewiston, the state of Lewiston declared today as an act of kindness day. I know by the time you hear this podcast, this will be over, but I think active kindness day can be every day. And so, you know, just think about what you can do to just put that smile on someone's face, someone's face, let them know they matter. Um, Cause mattering is, you know, as Kaylina mentioned before, you know, when folks get on the outskirts of their communities, um, mattering is that thing that they don't feel. So if we make sure people feel they matter every day, then we're doing our part um, to help heal these type of moments. So Jesse, I'm curious about the worksheet you were talking about, the, the disappointment worksheet journaling exercise. Um, and, and you gave the example of like using art to, to process losing a loved one, right. Or something that you loved, which I love that idea. And I'm curious if any of you, not just Jesse, if, if Tony or Heather also have ideas about how we can kind of take that exercise and idea and extrapolate it to community grief, because a lot of kids probably don't know someone that was affected, right? Across the state, most kids aren't going to know someone that was involved in this and, but they still might be feeling fear and um, feeling that community grief. So like, how do we process community violence um, in a similar way? Because I love the examples you gave, Jesse. And so like, how do we take that and make it bigger? Any ideas? <laughs> so one of the things that happened after 9-11 was a lot of schools sent notes to the helpers they sent thank you notes and you know we're thinking of yous to the people who were responding because they didn't know the people who were affected and they couldn't know the people who were affected that was you know it was too far away from us in Maine it was too far away from us in Colorado wherever you were if you weren't really close to New York you didn't know those people but you don't need to know the first responders to in order to thank them. You don't need to know the people who helped out with putting new safer legislation in and making new rules for our country that meant we would be safer. And so that was a huge outreach that happened throughout the country where schools and kids were writing thank you notes to all of the first responders. Um, and then one of the other pieces that you can do in a smaller community, so like in our state of Maine, is you can still write thank you notes to the first responders. You can send them to the fire station or whoever else, the police department in Lewiston or the state of Maine, um, sheriff's department, whatever's closest to you. Um, but also finding ways to appreciate your community and opening up about how your community is special. So one of the things um, we did in Girl Scouts after the event in Lewiston, so we just had our first back to, back to Girl Scouts event yesterday. Um, and one of the things we did is we talked about what makes our 
troop and our town special so that they can they can find those pieces of what they want to hold dear about who they you know their community who their community is how our state is special how our town is special how our troop is special um and then one of the other pieces that we would do in therapy is we would make um it's an activity called warm fuzzies and you have a gingerbread cutout of a human being on a piece of paper and you write your name in the head and then you write nothing about yourself on your paper but you think about all the things that you think about yourself and then in your classroom you can pass those papers around and everyone writes something nice about the person on the outside of the the shape something warm and fuzzy and it goes all the way around until it gets back to you once you've got your paper with your name on it you can have them fold the outside words under so they can't see them and write reflections of themselves or you can open those flaps up and let them let how the other people see them influence the way that they see themselves and i really like watching how that shifts because so often we are most critical of ourselves and people outside of us don't view us that way so that is a great activity to build a sense of community in your classroom and so um if your kids aren't old enough to write you can always do a warm fuzzy where they stand up in the middle of a classroom circle and we all say nice things about each other and you give a like this is how i'm feeling now i'm feeling sad and then when it's all over you can ask them how are you feeling now and often that is not sad anymore so that's a great community activity to do with whatever group you're working with whether it's school or a, a youth group or a girl scout troop boy scout troop whatever you're working with um but it's a great activity i think too you know jesse talked about the letter writing campaigns after 9-11, things like that. I think it's important with kids to talk about, you know, the police and firefighters, absolutely, those are the helpers. But there are other kinds of helpers. The, the act of writing those letters turns you into being a helper because you are helping those people. So I think an awesome activity with kids is to ask them, you know, how can we be helpers? What can we do to help? J just putting that on them too to think about what can we do for our community that lets them take that ownership and lets them feel oh I'm a helper now you know putting that on them and not going in with preconceived notions of what they might come up with I think is really important too as a teacher you know I love that idea Tony of of putting it on them and having them learn to be advocates and and community caregivers you know they might come up with writing letters if or drawing pictures for for the first responders and that might be what your notion is in your head but then they might say hey we want to make a mural in our community like on the wall outside of our building or hey we want to you know I've had first graders uh want to do campaigns to legislature legislators right like um about different things they were passionate about I think there are all kinds of ways to help and to contribute to the community and to help advocate for um, more 
more community systems and more community care and safer communities. Um, and so kind of letting the students lead you in that too, I think, and being open to the the possibilities of what what they might want to do to help, I think is really important. Maybe they want to have a bake sale. Um, <laughs> you know, there was a, a family child care a couple months ago that did a lemonade stand, right? Um, and there are just lots of lots of ways to help. And so not not going in trying to like direct them to one path or the other, but just letting them help in the ways that makes the most sense for them and and capitalizes on their gifts and and what they can contribute. I think something I've been thinking about too, because it's, you know, is always a hard issue in discussing, especially in early childhood play. Um, and I think about after an event that's happened so close to all of us in Maine um, is the concept about pretend gunplay in our classrooms. And certainly as a classroom teacher, and I know Tony, Kaylina, you know, and I'm sure Jesse, even in your conversations with children, you know, um, you know, we have a rich culture of hunting in our state um, and sport. And that is a part of kids' everyday lives that they talk about and, and are, are part of their families and they bring that to school. And I know it can put teachers in difficult situations, uh, especially as each teacher has different comfortable levels um with this type of pretend play in school so you know what I would recommend there there actually are a lot of and probably we could post and share some resources um about you know how to navigate that in your classrooms that you know this is part of a natural process of some children's play and you know there are um healthy ways to work with that in your classroom um and make sure everyone feels um, honored and safe. And so I imagine that's probably on a lot of teachers' minds right now, um, how to have that type of play in their classroom and what's the comfortable level, one of the teachers and the adults, what's the comfortable level of other students in the classroom, what's part, you know, what's part of culture and, and natural outlets and play for kids. So um, certainly when I felt faced with those questions, I would consult experts. I know we have, you know, folks around Maine who have done um, trainings on this, and that certainly supported me. Um, you know, one person I'll throw out, she was a former board member of ours, um, and is a licensed um, social worker in my area, Sarah McLaughlin, you know, was probably one person I got my wealth of information on how to navigate this in healthy ways in my classroom and allow, you know, children to have their safe pretend play um, but also allow other children to have safe um, feelings around that too, as as that play was being done. So um, when we have a heightened situation like this, I can imagine the reevaluation of how we approach that in classrooms is very much real and present in people's minds right now as well. So um, just know that there are resources out there to help you navigate that from a professional um, standpoint. And I think that's maybe something we could dig into as well and maybe share um, places to go when you kind of need to just process that again, if you're reevaluating um, how you're thinking about that in your program and, and you know, appropriateness of it, how close it is to an event, um, you know, because certainly there's, there's people who have research studied this that have some good guidance to share on that. 
One book that I just off the top of my head know it's um, a book that I really love at this point. It's kind of an older book. It was came out in 2002, um, but it's called Under Dead Man's Skin, Discovering the Meaning of Children's Violent Play. And it is really exploring that, that uh, topic. It's written by Jane Catch um, with an introduction by Vivian Gusson Paley, who's like one of my teacher idols. If you don't know who she is, you should. Um, but anyways, um, it's just a, a deep reflection on, on violent play and gun play, um, and play about death in the, in the classroom. Um, and I just, I want to say like really explicitly to, in case there are people who are listening, who are outside of the field that like when Heather's talking about safe pretend play it's because we know and there's decades of research that show dramatic play is a huge way and pretend play is a huge way that children process what's going on in their lives that's one reason that playing house is so common right it's because that's a context that children see all the time and so they want to model it and process what they're seeing in play and so that's violent play might come out because they're trying to process what's going on and so we don't want to shut that down, but we also want to make everyone else feel safe and comfortable as well. One of the other things that comes up in this sort of topic is um, is team building and conflict transformation. It's not conflict resolution because resolution means that we ended up where we started. Transformation means we've changed through this process. And so... Um, John Latterack, John Latterack did a whole article um, about conflict transformation, but essentially you can do this in your classroom where you talk about examples of how do we resolve a problem between us in a healthy, helpful, and transformative way. So we don't go back to what we were doing before because clearly that wasn't working. And so there's a lot of, you know, you can Google team building for classrooms and there's 12 million options of activities to do. My personal favorite is um, stacking cups. So if you get plastic cups and or paper cups and a rubber band and four strings, you tie the strings to the rubber band, you get four kids, you can have a director and they can't use their hands to touch the cups and they have to stack the cups from a stack into a pyramid and then put them back into their stack. And sometimes we do it without like with no communication and see how horribly that goes to really emphasize how great communicating is. Um, and then, um, and then, but talking about the transformation part with what went wrong, where are our gaps in communication and how do we demonstrate solving problems in a healthy way because part of why we experienced the incident in Lewiston is because problems weren't being solved in a healthy way for one individual and that impacted thousands of people so demonstrating those healthy ways to communicate and solve problems helps to alleviate some of the long-term effects of that and working through those pieces and so one of the things so I had a lot of families reach out to me which was not supposed to happen because they were former clients but they were like what the heck do we do 
we're, how do we talk about this with our kids? And I was like, well, I mean, you, you'd have to be really honest and candid with them. But part of it is that one person was having a really bad day. And that's what happened. One person. One person had a problem that they didn't know how to handle. And so can we demonstrate better problem solving so that we have less people who have a really bad day that impacts thousands of people? And that is, that really gets to the root of what kids are seeing. Because what they're seeing is one person had a really bad day. And lots of people were impacted. And so when you demonstrate and when you teach conflict transformation in your classrooms and at home and with your friends, it helps to negate some of those numbers. It helps to lessen the likelihood that those numbers are going to increase. All right. Well, thank you guys for coming and chatting. Um, this was not what we had planned for this week's episode. And um, I appreciate you jumping in to kind of just reflect with me. <laughs> um, so, so thank you so much. And hopefully I'll have you on again in the future in a less, um, you know, tense moment. <laughs> um, so yeah, so thank you guys so, so much. Any any last thoughts to wrap up? I think the big takeaway and the big thing we've all kind of talked about is the first key step is being honest and true about what we're feeling, about what's happening, and just making sure that, yes, we're there, but that everything is there. You know, here's what I'm feeling. Here's what happened. Not trying you know we've all said not trying to put on the brave face not trying to pretend things are okay when they're not so I think that's the big takeaway is be honest and true to yourself to others absolutely Tony thank you and I think you know I would hope again that people reach out um, if there's ways that we can support through our networks and relationships um, would certainly want to know where we can fill a void or resource resource or a source of help um, that we definitely want to be responsive to people's needs at this time. And again, um, that we are, we're worried about you. And I think it's nice to know that people worry about you. We're worried about all of you um, and how you're processing and, and doing your day-to-day -day job. And uh, again, you do some of the best work on this earth and just know that, you know, no matter how you're handling it or doing it, you're doing it and we appreciate that and children appreciate that and families appreciate that. Um, and, you know, you're just, you're thought of constantly and you're valuable. So hopefully you can hold that, um, you know, in your hearts from all of us. Yeah, we are here. If there are resources or supports that you're looking for um, that we can help create, or, or give you, we are here to help with that. One thing we have already done is we compiled a list um, of resources, articles, videos, books to talk about um, violence and community tragedy with children. Um, it, we sent it out in our e-news last Friday, but um, 
it is now on our website as well. So if you go to maineyc.org um, and you go to the, the programs and projects tab, and then under that click for ECE professionals. But it's a great list for parents and families as well, anyone who works with children really, um, not just for educators. So it's a huge list of resources that we have already compiled, but um, we would love to add to that and be useful um, to you as much as we can. Um, like Heather said, maybe we'll put some things out about about gunplay next. That's that's a new idea that came up in this conversation. So thank you, Heather. And um and please let us know how we can be useful to you because we want we want to be useful. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care, everyone. Thank you all for listening to this unique episode of 123 All Ears on Me. The resources mentioned in this episode can be found at maineyc.org. That's M-A-I-N-E-A-E-Y-C.org. They can also be found in the show notes. This podcast is a production of the Maine Association for the Education of Young Children, a.k.a. Maine A-E-Y-C. It is hosted, produced, recorded, and edited by me, Kaylina Mills. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Until next time.